recognize that picture? You seen it? It came about because a 12-year-old boy by the name of Devante Hart was holding a sign offering free hugs in Portland, Oregon at a rally a few weeks ago in response to recent events in Ferguson, Missouri. Of course, that being the grand jury's decision in the end not to indict Officer Darren Wilson in the slaying, the death of Michael Brown. Portland Police Sergeant Brett Barnum was uh, there on the scene, obviously. He approached Devante, he extended his hand and asked the young lad what had him so upset. And Devante said in response that uh, he was concerned for police brutality um, towards young black kids. Instead of answering in a, in a posture of defensiveness, Officer, uh, Officer Barnum then simply said, I know, I know, I'm sorry. And then he asked for one of his hugs. And then that made the picture what it is. Now, why is that picture so popular? What is it that has struck the chord that it has so obviously struck across not just this nation, but the world? A longing, a longing deep within every man, woman, and child that this image points to a, a, a longing for a, a healing of the breach, a longing for a tearing down of the walls, a longing for true, deep, honest reconciliation for peace, something that transcends race and class and culture. A longing for that, that that image touches and a profound aching sense that things are wrong, that this world is not the way it's supposed to be. So then the question is, are we just stuck with that, with things as they are? Can they change? Can it be different? Is it possible? If you have a Bible, I'd ask you to turn with me now to the book of Acts. Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. We're going to read just the last portion of that chapter, verses 42 through 47. As you're turning there, uh, this is in the New Testament. It's after the Gospel accounts. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, we have the book of Acts. Some of you may know that this is actually volume two of Luke's two-part work. Uh, we have the gospel according to Luke and the book of Acts, the book of Luke, the gospel being, as Luke describes himself, what Jesus began to do and to teach, inferring, of course, that he wasn't done. And that's what we have with the book of Acts. Um, most likely, uh, this was written in the mid-60s, that is, A.D., not those 60s. Um, and it's, it's this, my point in saying that is this is an historical document. This is an historical record of what happened. Well, he's easily verified. Um, easily backed up. But it's also the Word of God. So with that in mind, let's hear now Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47. 
And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul. And many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number, day by day, those who were being saved. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for these few minutes that we have here in this little place, in this little bit of time, to hear from you, uh, to hear your word, to ponder it, to meditate on it, to, um, to read it and have it read us. Because your word is living and active, you are living and active. And we ask that you would give us ears with which to hear. Help us to imagine, see, envision what was transpiring in that place there in Jerusalem so many years ago in its original context and how, how that is significant for us today. Oh, we, we pray that you'd help us with this and shape us accordingly. Amen. Well, here's the thing. History is a stubborn thing. His historical facts are a stubborn thing, and case in point, the explosion of Christianity throughout the Roman Empire in the early centuries uh, after the birth of the church. It defies all expectations. It absolutely defies all expectations. Think with me just for a minute. The, the original converts, the first converts of the early church were, Jew, were Jewish. And a, a, goodness gracious, a, the thing that Judaism was, was known for, among other things, was monotheism, a belief in but one God, not a multiplicity of gods, but one God. And yet in that context, these Jewish people somehow suddenly began speaking of this seemingly otherwise blasphemous idea of a trinity. Where does that come from? Or even worse, even more scandalous, a Messiah said not just to be human, but divine God. Where does, how does that happen among these Jewish people? Where does that come from? How do you account for that? Or, or this, whether they be Jew or Gentile, as the church grew and as the intensity of the persecutions grew, and it didn't take very long for that to start, what they were willing to lose their reputations, their possessions, their goods, in many, many, many cases, their very lives, some of them suffering horrific deaths. And you have to ask yourself, why? How do you account for this? You see, the question is not, did these things happen? All of that is, an, is plainly historical record. Everyone on both sides agrees these things happen. So the question is not, did they happen? The question is, why? Why did these things happen? What's the explanation for it? And the explanation for it is this. A profound change had taken place in their lives. Something deep. They simply cannot just be explained away. It was new life. 
was new life. That's what had happened. Now let me recap where we are in this little mini-series here in this Advent season. We've been talking about the fall. An historical reality in time and space that you read about in Genesis 3 and that we feel in time and space right now. And part of, of that we could describe as, as a tearing. At the fall of Adam and Eve, there was a tearing of the fabric of reality, a series of, of separations, alienations that then take place. And we've talked about how Jesus has come as the Prince of Peace to renew, repair, redeem. Last week we talked about how uh, He has come to renew His very creation, the whole of it all. The cosmos itself is broken and fallen, and He is the creator of that, has come to make it right and put it back together. Well, today we're looking at this, not just to renew creation, but to renew us and specifically make for Himself a new community, making us one, bringing peace between us. Um, and then here in this account of Luke, Luke, Dr. Luke, in this Acts of the Apostles, what we, how we oftentimes refer to that, we see its beginnings. We see a new community. We see Jesus making us one, peace between us. We see, we see indications of the reality of, again, what we talked about last week. I kept saying this, the, the, the joyous news that the angels were singing, proclaiming there above those fields in Bethlehem, Behold, I bring you this day great news of great joy. Well, this is a part of why that news is so good and so great. He has come to bring peace between us, and we need to hear this and lay hold of it. Now, how do we see that here in Acts 2? Well, in two ways. First, and simply in what was happening. You can see something going on. And then also, and who was included? Who was a part of it? And the two things, I think you can see that very clearly. So first, let's look at this first point. What was happening? What was happening? And how does this give us a sign of indications of the Lord at work and bringing about this new life and a new community and peace between us? Let's just look at this. Verse 42, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. This was a learning group of people, a learning church. It was not... Um, made up of an anti-intellectualism by any stretch of the imagination. There was no despising of the mind, no dismissal of theology, no disdain for instruction. Rather, they recognized their need for it, a devotion to the apostles' teaching, the apostles teaching them that, that which they had heard from Jesus and that which they then had to relay about Jesus. And you know what? We have that today, the New Testament. That's what that is. Preserved for us all these years, the apostles' teaching. As John Stott wrote in his commentary in the book of Acts, the Spirit of God leads the people of God to submit to the Word of God. There's something going on here that otherwise could not just be explained. It's a learning church. It's a caring church. You keep reading through verse 42, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship. And you keep reading and you see examples of that, how that was fleshed out. They, this was a, a common life, a, sh a shared life together. They recognized how much they shared together in terms of a, a common relationship as brothers and sisters in the faith. They recognized how much they shared together in terms of a common partnership, the same purpose and mission and task, yoked together in these things, a common shared Life And because of all that they knew that they shared together, they then, as an extension of that, shared with one another, shared with one another their very lives. 
an openness, a vulnerability, an accountability, and a, and a you know, the buzzword today, an authenticity, an honesty, a candor. Weeping with those who weep and rejoicing with those who rejoice. They shared of themselves with one another, but not just that. Of course, you see this so clearly in the text. They shared of their things with one another. Sacrificially, generously, gladly. Again, Stott writes of this in his commentary. It is a part of the responsibility of spirit-filled believers to alleviate need and abolish destitution in the new community of Jesus. Okay, so it's a learning church. It's a caring church. It's also a worshiping church, assembly, uh, ecclesia. That's what that word church means, where it comes from, rather. Uh, gathering. Uh, it's marked by something that's happening here, something supernatural, something miraculous, something new. It's a new community, peace being made between them. Again, verse 42, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. Now, there's an article there. It's not just to breaking of bread. They're not just, it's not a supper club. The breaking of the bread, most New Testament scholars will tell you that's, that's an indication of the Lord's Supper. That's what that's talking about there. It's a, they're gathering together to worship. And how? What forms? What settings do we see? What's formal and informal in the temple and in their homes? Which tells us something. We need both. We need not artificially set one against the other. We need both. We see not just variety of settings, but a balanced expression. We see uh, they're glad and, and generous, rejoicing, awe and wonder, though, at the same time. And so some of us you know, might be more prone temperamentally towards one or the other. And you might say, well, we just need to make room for both. No, it's not enough. It's actually we need both. Just flat out need both. And we see that going on here. Again, the point being that this, these are all evidences. These are all signs of this new life, of, of a stirring, of a, of a new community being created, of peace between one another here in the earliest days of the church. This is signs of new life. It wasn't forced. Think with me about this. That, you know, it's Christmas time, the first nativity, right? So you have Mary and Joseph. They're in that cave or that stable or that stable cave or whatever it was. Um, and, you know, they, they didn't have the high-tech stuff. They didn't have, you know... Um, a pediatrician there on hand. Uh, they, they didn't have, you know, these monitors and that monitor. So, so how would they know if this dear, dear child that, that Mary is giving birth to, how would they know that he's healthy, right? How would they know for sure that he's going to be okay? Well, the, the same way that parents have done for millennia before. You listen for the cry. You don't tell the baby, hey kid, cry. You don't have to tell a healthy child to cry. child will cry. It's an expression of help. It's a sign of help. It's evidence of something. There's life there. And that's what we see here. These things, the learning, the caring, the worship, these are signs, evidences of life of this new community made by Jesus for himself. Something brand new, something radical, something beautiful, and peace between. Now, I just I think it leads us to some questions that we have to ask. I just want to ask two. One regarding the learning and one regarding the caring. Okay, so we talk about a lot. We talk, we talk good talk about how this is the, the Bible is the Scripture. It's the Word of God. It's the light for our path. It's our very light, our life. 
Here's a simple softball pitch. Are we reading it? Do we treasure it for what it is? Are we in it? Are we reading it and letting it read us? Oh, we need that. More than it would seem, I know, my habits and your habits would seem to indicate. Um, that's one. Although the second thing would be the caring question. It's very clear, uh, and there's no argument here, that the scriptures certainly do tell us that we are a family, we are a body, there's an interdependency. Um, do you know that of yourself? When you look in the mirror and you look at the people to your right and to your left, is, is, your, is your default setting, I need them and I know that I am needed by a larger group. It's not just me. It's not just about me. Are there indications of that, concrete indications of that, of that, that sort of heartfelt knowledge and conviction in my life, in your life, in our lives together? Questions to ask, and I think also conclusions to draw from this, these signs of life, these evidences, if these things be indicators of something happening spiritually in the life of a person, well then what conclusions can we draw there? If these things are not present and never have been, what does that mean of a person? They are not a Christian. And if you're here this morning and those things are not in any way and never have been manifested in your life, you're like a child, a newborn, that's not crying. What do you need to do to ask the Lord to change your heart? But what, what, if, you know, what if you're thinking this morning, but... Okay, those things have been in, in place in my life at one time. It's not that it never has been, but it's just they're not now. Or they're at such low ebb. They're just sorely lacking in my life now. What do I need to do? Ask him to stir the embers of your heart. To blow on those just barely glowing embers in your heart and kindle the flame again. And by the way, lay hold of the means that he has given us through which he most often tends to work to do that. Time in the Word. Time in prayer. Time with fellow believers who don't just talk about the weather and sports, but are willing to go there and talk about real things. These are questions to consider and conclusions to draw. The Lord is at work. There's good news, beautiful, sweet news, great news, good news of great joy. Are we hearing it? Are we hearing it? New life, a new community being created, peace being made between us. Okay, you can see that in what was happening from the start. You can also see it, and I think that this is something that I really have been gripped by over the last several days, the more I have thought about this. Not just those signs, but also who. Not just what, but who was there, who was included, who was a part of this that defies any horizontal, human, ordinary sort of explanation. It's supernatural and it's miraculous. Think with me of the rich diversity of the people that are there. 
that Acts 2, 42 through 47 is talking about. If you, I'm not going to read it, but if you go back to the beginning of chapter 2 of Acts 2, the beginning of, never mind. You go to the beginning of, of Acts 2. What are you reading about? We're reading about the festival of Pentecost. And Jewish believers gathered from various regions all around the Roman Empire are there in Jerusalem. Okay? from all kinds of different cultures, speaking all kinds of different languages. I'll come back to that in just a second. And you have this little band of Christ followers, these Christians, these disciples of Jesus, just 120 gathered in this place. And in that moment in space and time, the Holy Spirit comes and fills those people, empowers those people to speak languages that they have never spoken before, that they never knew. They didn't, you know... Uh, get Rosetta Stone out, you know, the, the months prior. They, they had no exposure and knowledge and a skill set with these languages, but they just began speaking them. And so all these other people who, who were gathered there in Jerusalem hear this, and they're shocked, they're overwhelmed, they're astounded. That's what you read in verses 5 to 13 of Acts 2. Then you pick up in verse 14, you read on to verse 41, and this is Peter's sermon explaining it. This is what's happened. This is the Holy Spirit of God sent by Jesus, the ascended King, as long ago promised. That's what's going on. And 3,000 people were converted that day to Christ. 3,000. That's the context for what we read of in Acts chapter 2, verse 42 and following that I read a moment ago, the rich diversity of people, the Pentecost event, the Pentecost significance, what's going on? A new day has dawned. As was promised, salvation is coming. God's salvation is coming and has come to all nations, to all tribes, to all languages. It's a rich, beautiful diversity, tapestry of people represented there that day. It's wondrous. Absolutely wondrous. What can bring us together, folks? Come back to that in a minute. Deep devotion. It's not just rich, rich diversity, but deep devotion as well. It's not just a, just a smattering of people, just broad and wide, but it goes deep. It goes deep. Not just, you know, association, you know, that's just barely hanging on together, but, you know, there's a bond there. There's a tie there. They, they were, put it this way, they were together and so they met together. They were together, and so because of that, they met together. Look with me, verse 44. And all who believed were together. And that's not in, that, in a physical proximity sense. That's in a, in a heart sense. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. Now you keep reading and you see the physical proximity sense. Verse 45, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Any need. As any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together, there's that proximity, and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. They were together, and so that they, they then met together. The pronouns have all shifted. You is now us. They are now we. The, the uh, scholars of the ancient Near East, and in particular of the ancient religions, and looking at Christianity and what was going on there in the Roman Empire, spoke of one of the things, one of the one of the many things that was so compelling about this new faith was its inclusiveness. 
this beautiful inclusiveness that was so rich and, and, and at the same time deep. There was a, they were compelled to meet to eat with one another, compelled to do so continually. They didn't, it, it was a responsibility, of course. It was a duty, of course. But they delighted to do the duty. They longed to be with one another. That's the sense that you get here. Now, now something's going on. Jesus is what's going on. Or who? This new life, this new community is being created. Signs and evidence, peace being made between us. It is miraculous. It is supernatural. And it is so typical of Jesus. If I can be slightly flippant. It is so typical of him to do something like this. You think back with me to the calling of the first disciples. Who's in that band? You go back and read the gospel accounts and you list the names and you start reading in there and thinking about some of the details there. I'll give you two because it's fascinating. You have Matthew, Levi, the tax collector, who everyone would have regarded, except other tax collectors, would have regarded as a greedy swindler and a traitor to his people. Because, you know, he's a Jewish man enlisted by the Roman occupying army to collect monies and taxes and tributes from his fellow Jews for the Romans, for Caesar. It was, it was, it was deemed to be not just greedy, but traitorous, hated. You have Matthew among the twelve. Who else do you have? A guy named Simon, known as Simon the Zealot. You know what a zealot was? A terrorist, a political insurrectionist there in Judea who hated that party, hated all things Roman, would have loved to give in any chance, slip a dagger. And this was the kind of thing that they were known to do. In crowded markets, you know, just go up to a Roman official, you know, have a dagger under the robes, walk away. This is interesting, isn't it? Simon the Zealot and Matthew the tax collector. What is Jesus thinking? Is this a model of cohesion? Is this the way you do it? In Jesus' economy, yes. Yes, it is. It absolutely is. This is the kind of thing that he'll do. Or just think with me, your nativity scenes up on your mantelpieces. Who's there? Shepherds. The dregs, the outcasts of society. Magi. Wise men. Pagan astrologers. All led there, all drawn there by this king, the one who's come to make us one, to make peace between us. Martin Lloyd-Jones, that great preacher from the 20th century there in London, writes of something of this, um, well, actually preached it, and there's a collection of so many of his sermon manuscripts, especially Romans and Ephesians, and I've got some of his from the book of the series on Acts, tells a story reflecting on the days of World War II and the times in which he was the pastoring a church there in London. There were troops stationed in Britain from Canada, from America, from Holland, from Norway, from almost every part of the world. Here were these men and women for a while in London. They would come to the service, and at the end they would come to see me. I had never seen them before, but you know, I knew them. I knew them, and they knew me. 
We had never seen one another before. We had never spoken before. But you recognize a brother. You know at once that you belong together. It does not matter what the color is. It does not matter what the clothing is. You speak the same language. You have fellowship. It's an old Dutch uh, medieval carol. First line is this, come and stand amazed. C.S. Lewis wrote an essay. Um, it's in his collection of essays, God in the Dock. It's called The Grand Miracle. And both uh, this, that old song and that, that essay are reflecting on this very thing, the wonder of the incarnation, the miracle of miracles. God, the almighty God, the creator of everything, there as man, a child. And all the other, everything else flows from that. But the kind of things that we're reading of here in Acts 2, while it may not, if I can put it this way, that might be the grand miracle of a capital M, these things are still miraculous nonetheless. What we're reading of here happening in Acts 2, it just doesn't happen. You see, opponents of this skeptics, cynics, we want to push back on the, Maybe some of you are feeling some of that right now. So let me just kind of counter that, if I may. You, you, the temptation is to say, oh, these folks are just gathered together. That is just common temperament. Personality profiles, it's all the same. No, it wasn't. Oh, it's just a bunch of Democrats, or it's just a bunch of Republicans, or it's just a bunch of PBS or Fox News watchers. Just getting it. No, no, it wasn't. Oh, well, it's just, it's all the same cultural experiences and life experiences, and that's what's assembled these. No! How can you read? How can you read this historical record and with a straight face explain it, any of these things like that? That wasn't it at all. It's the gospel that makes community possible because it humbles us. It helps us to see God truly. It helps us see others truly. It helps us to see ourselves truly. It makes it possible. It also makes it inevitable because we find ourselves to be drawn towards one another. It creates this deep affection and ties and bonds between us. Christmas makes community, if I can put it that way. Jesus has come to make peace between us. We need to lay hold of this. He's come to make all things new. He's come to make us new. He's come to make our relationships new. But I know even then there's a question that can come, and I want to end by just talking about this for a minute. Well, but what do you say about Christians? I mean, I know you're saying all this stuff. You know, it makes community possible. It makes it inevitable. This is the mark of the church and everything. But what about people who say there are Christians who clearly don't love one another? That's not so fanciful. Does that not then undercut the claims of everything you're talking about? Yes and no. Yes, that happens. And it ought not to. No, it does not undercut what I'm saying. Let me explain that, give you a couple of images. Imagine for a moment you have a car designer whose car is coming apart. The engine is wrecked because the car designer has seen that as he's gone about for months driving it, never to tend to the engine, never to change the oil, never to pay attention to anything. That's, he's just driving it and he wrecks it. Does that speak against problems with the car's design? No. It's problems with the car's driver. 
not the design. Or a doctor, a doctor whose health is wrecked because he or she has abused their body for years on end. Does that speak then against the practice of medicine? No. A failure to apply it. So you have a Christian who in this particular case is, is unwilling and unable to love his or her fellow Christians. Does that then negate necessarily, outright, the claims of the gospel? No, it doesn't. No, it doesn't. So my friends, I want you to understand that that kind of leap of logic is illogical. It is, it is illogical, but I also want to say this, it's understandable. It's understandable. Um, you may be here this morning with longing in your heart, a searching in your heart for something real, for something that's deep and true. And you've heard Christians talk about this transformative power of the gospel. And so you found yourself drawn to this and invited to maybe an occasion like this or gatherings and relationships and getting engaged with all this. And you, maybe you thought you were coming to a gathering of warm friends and it seems more like it's a fight club. And I have only one thing to say because I know that could be a tremendous stumbling block for you. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. And if you're here this morning and now you're mulling this over as a Christian and you're reflecting back on your own relationships and contemplating maybe what others have gleaned from your relationships and you realize that perhaps you yourself have become a stumbling block to others, I have but one thing to say to you and to me. We need to do better. We need to do better. We, my point in saying that, to, we see there's something for all of us here, isn't there? We all need Christmas. We all need the coming of the Prince of Peace. We all need this one who has come to make us new, to make all things new, to bring peace, to restore shalom, and to make peace even between us. Oh, we need it. All of us. All of us. Let's pray. Lord, we hear and even sing of peace on earth. Much this time of year. And then we read passages like this and others like it and see that, goodness, maybe you really meant it. And there's a, certainly signs and indications all around us of longing and searching for just this kind of, of thing. And here we have the record of it happening. It really, it really happened. It happened then, it can happen now. We have the explanation. It's not just do-goodery, but it's, it's the gospel working itself into people's lives and then out because of your presence and because of your power. And so we ask that you would give us eyes, again as we prayed in the beginning, eyes with which to see and ears with which to hear, and lives that are changed because of you. Amen. I may ask my...